Today we are going to continue in our series entitled Hot Button Issues onto part four. And the question, can we be good without God? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that by your word we have light to dispel the darkness and dispel confusion. And so I pray, Lord, that again in the light of your word that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that we would understand both intellectually, but that it would settle down to our hearts, that in our spirit we would know it to be true, and that out of that truth you would stir our feet and our hands and our mouths into action in accordance with your word. So bless it, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we be good without God? There's a story told of a young woman who was soaking up the sun's rays on a Florida beach when a little boy, in his swimming trunks with a towel over his shoulder, came up to her and asked her the question, Do you believe in God? Well, she was taken by surprise by this completely out-of-the-blue question from someone she'd never even seen before, but she answered, Why, yes, I do. Then he asked her, Do you go to church every Sunday? Again, she said, well, yes, yes, I do. Do you read your Bible and pray every day? Again, she said, well, yes, at least I try to. But why are you asking me all of these questions? Finally, the little boy let out a great sigh of relief. He held up a shiny quarter and asked, will you keep this safe for me while I go swimming? (laughs) Now, what's clear from this story is that the little boy had made some observations about life, and even at a young age, he had a belief that someone who believed in God, who followed him in daily practice, would be someone that he could trust to keep his precious quarter safe. Now, clearly, that little boy believed something that we often take for granted. He believed that God enabled someone to be good, and that apart from God, he didn't know if this person would be quite so trustworthy. And so I ask again, can we be good without God? In other words, can someone be trustworthy to not steal the quarter, to behave in a moral way without having a foundational belief in a supreme giver of what is right and what is wrong? Now, if the answer to that is yes, yes, we can be good without God, then what about society as a whole? Can it continue to function in a moral way without belief in there being a source of absolute morality? Well, some of the greatest minds this world have ever known have dedicated their entire lives to the question of, first, does God exist? And second, can man behave in a right and moral way apart from him? And this has been the subject of continuous and furious debate, especially in modern times. But it's actually not a new debate at all. In fact, the ancient Roman philosopher Cicero would tell his students a story about Simonides, an ancient Greek poet who is known to have an answer for everything, a real know-it-all. So one day, he was challenged by Hiero the tyrant with the question, what is God? Well, Simonides requested a day to consider the question, then another and another. Day after day, he pondered the question and yet requested an extension until finally, many, many weeks later, the know-it-all admitted defeat. 
He didn't know the answer to this question. He concluded that it became only more baffling the longer he thought about it. He finally concluded that God was unknowable. As Christians, however, we, of course, have gathered here today because we have reached the exact opposite conclusion to Simonides. As we embrace the words of Jesus in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That they may know you. We are gathered here today because we fundamentally believe that we can, and in fact do, know God. And so today, by faith in the Word of God, we affirm that not only is God real, not only does He exist, but that He knows us, and that incredibly we may know Him through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we declare that. That is fundamental to why we have gathered here today But the fact is that right now we are living in a time and in a culture where in fact the majority of people around us don't believe that. Many are agnostics like Simonides. They still believe that there is a God somewhere out there, but they don't believe that he is personal or that he can be known. He is distant. There are others still who are atheists. That is, they don't believe in the existence of God at all. And they conclude that the natural realm is all that there is and that it somehow came into existence through a series of cosmic coincidences strung out over billions of years. But in either category, most people would say that they don't need God in order to be good and moral people. So, I ask again, can we, can man, can people be good without God? Well, let's see what the Word of God says. Turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 14, a scripture passage that was read for us earlier. In Psalm 14 and verse 1, we read this declaration. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So first we see that the existence of God is denied by the foolish. The existence of God is denied by the foolish. Now, in some translations, you'll notice in verse 1, the words, there is, are in italics. That's because in the Hebrew text, the words, there is, are not actually there. It's been added so that we can understand what they're actually saying. But in the, the original Hebrew, what the verse actually says is this. The fool has said in his heart, no God. No God. Not there is has been added for understanding for English sake, but in Hebrew, it's simply the fool has said in his heart, no God. Two words, no God. This is the person who wants nothing to do with God at all. No God. He has no use for God's person, God's principles, or God's people. Now, one thing I find fascinating is that in 41,173 verses in the Bible, did anyone know I should have asked to see if anyone had that memorized, that's how many verses are in the Bible, over 41,000. And in the entire text, there is only one verse that is dedicated solely to the atheist, and this is it. Of the 7,700, pardon me, 774,746 words in the entire Bible, There are only 11 words devoted to the atheist. 
And it clearly states what the atheist says about God. There is no God. And then we have what God says about the atheist in only one succinct term. Fool. That's it. The atheist says no God, and God says back, fool. Now, I find it humorous in an ironic sort of a way that God is, in fact, speaking about someone who doesn't even believe in him or that he can speak. It's like the child who was raised in an atheistic family. And one day, the little child at the dinner table said to his mom and dad, Mom, Dad, do you think God knows we don't believe in him? Think about that for a minute. Unfortunately, the world is full of brilliant fools. The world is full of brilliant fools. All through our universities and and, and places of higher learning in our land, there are PhDs and doctorates in leading universities who can do things like intellectually understand E equals MC squared. But spiritually, they don't even know their ABCs. They see a car and they believe in a car manufacturer. They see a portrait and they believe in an artist. They see a book and they believe in an author. But they see a complex and intricate creation and universe, but refuse to believe in a creator. In Romans chapter 1 verse 20, it says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. This verse is saying God's existence is self-evident through the universe, through the created order around us. Interestingly enough, David worked from that presupposition because he never once tries to prove the existence of God in this psalm. He merely presumes it. He says in verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven. Verse 5, For God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 6, The Lord is his refuge. He, He is presuming the existence of God. He is not trying to prove it. And so the question must be asked, is this a fair presumption to make? Does the evidence of this complex creation absolutely demand a creator? What does the evidence say? Well, I'm going to allow a scientist to answer that question. And this scientist was not even a professing Christian. As a matter of fact, this scientist was an atheist, as many are. His name is Sir Fred Hoyle. He is a professor at Cambridge University and one of the leading astronomers and scientists of the 20th century. Now, Sir Fred Hoyle wanted to find out the probability of just one human cell, one single human cell, coming into existence by mere chance, as claimed by the theory of evolution. In other words, he wanted to find out the probability of something coming from nothing. Something coming from nothing. What is the probability of this taking place? And so to hedge the bets in his favor and to be fair, he even started his calculation with the supposed age of the universe being 15 to 20 billion years rather than what many scientists believe to be the maximum age of 4.5 billion years. So Hoyle worked with another world-famous mathematician and astrophysicist to calculate the probabilities. These two great mathematical minds came up with the number of probability of just one simple cell coming into existence by chance. Are you ready for the number? It is 10. That's a number we can wrap our heads around, right? The number 10 
to the power of 40,000. Okay, now some of you aren't big on math, so what is 10 to the power of 40,000? How big is it? Well, you just multiply 10 times itself 40,000 times. Now, if you want to pull out your phone and start going on the calculator, mine doesn't go that high, nor do I have the time to go that high. 10 times itself 40,000 times. So I'm going to try to put it into perspective for you another way. That is the equivalent odds of taking a pair of dice and rolling double sixes 50,000 times in a row. So if you want to find out how improbable that is, go home and I challenge you. See how many double sixes you can roll in a row and then keep going until you get 50,000 in a row. Give it a try. Well, Hoyle concluded at the end of all of this that the the odds are so mind-boggling that evolution simply cannot explain the source of life and that for any kind of life to exist anywhere in the universe, it must be by the hand of an externally existent being of infinite power. And because of his study, Hoyle the atheist became a believer in God. Even one of the most outspoken atheists of our generation, you've probably heard of him, Richard Dawkins, even he had to admit this, quote, I can't be sure God doesn't exist. On a scale of seven, where one means I know he exists, and seven I know he doesn't, I call myself a six. That doesn't mean I'm absolutely confident that I absolutely know because I don't. So even Dawkins has to confess He's not certain about his atheism. So I asked the question, which is more foolish? To say that a complex universe was created by an even more complex creator? Or to say that a complex universe came about from nothing? And I would like to share with you now an adaptation of a story written by Henry Nguyen, entitled, Is That All There Is? I first shared this many years ago, but I think it fits here once more. Nguyen wrote this fictional account. Two babies are in utero, confined to the walls of their mother's womb, and are having a conversation. For the sake of clarity, we'll call these twins ego and spirit. Spirit says to ego, I know you're going to find this a little difficult to accept, but I truly believe that there is life after birth. Ego responds, don't be ridiculous. Look around you. This is all there is. Why must you always be thinking of something beyond this reality? Accept your lot in life. Make yourself comfortable and forget about all this life-after-birth nonsense. Spirit quiets, quiets down for a while, but her inner voice won't allow her to be silent any longer. Ego, now don't get mad, but I have something else to say. I also believe that there is a mother. A mother, Ego guffaws. How can you be so absurd? You've never seen a mother. No, spirit replies. But sometimes when we're really quiet and still, it's like I can feel her talking to us. And sometimes I dream that she's singing us to sleep. Oh, great. Now you're hearing voices too. Spirit, why can't you accept that this is all there is? The idea of a mother is crazy. You're here alone with me. This is your reality. Now grab hold of that cord, go into your corner, and stop being so silly. Trust me, there is no mother. 
while spirit reluctantly stops her conversation with ego. But restlessness soon gets the better of her. Ego, she implores once more. Please listen without rejecting my idea. Somehow I think that those constant pressures we both feel, those movements that make us so uncomfortable at times, that continual repositioning and all that closing in that seems to be taking place as we keep growing, I think that it's getting us ready for a place of glowing light and that we will experience it very soon. You are absolutely insane, replies Ego. All you have ever known is darkness. You've never seen the light. How can you even contemplate such an idea? Those movements and pressures you feel are your reality. You are a distinct separate being without any so-called mother sustaining you. This is your journey and you are on your own. Darkness and pressures and closed-in feelings is what life is all about. You'll just have to fight it as long as you can. Now grab your cord and please stay still. Spirit relaxes for a moment, but once again cannot contain herself. Ego, I have only one more thing to say, and then I won't bother you again. Fine, go ahead, Ego responds impatiently. I believe all of these pressures and all of this discomfort is not only going to bring us to a place of celestial light, but that when we experience it, we are going to meet Mother face to face, and she's going to hold us in her arms, and we will know an ecstasy that is beyond anything that we have ever experienced. And after Spirit finished, the silence lay heavy for a long moment, and finally Ego replied, Well, Spirit, you finally have me convinced. You really are crazy. Now, who really is the crazy one in this story? Who really is the crazy one in this world? The one who believes that there is a God. The one who believes that there is life after death. The one who believes that if we listen carefully, we can hear God's voice. And that there will be a moment where we meet our Father face to face and know an ecstasy beyond anything we have yet experienced. Or the one who looks at all of the same evidence and says, Nope, there is no God. We came from nothing and we are going to nothing. I'll let you answer that question for yourself. So first we see that the existence of God is denied by who God calls the fool. Secondly, we see in this passage that without God, morality becomes entirely subjective. Psalm 14, verses 1 to 4, let's continue to read this chapter. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. Now, the Hebrew word for fool does not denote one who is unintelligent, but one who is morally deficient. And that becomes clear when David goes on to describe them as corrupt and their deeds vile. They devour God's people as though eating bread. This means that they see others as only a means to satisfying their own selfish appetites. Others are a means to their own ends. Verse 6 says, You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor. And this means they like keeping the poor underfoot, under their yoke, and not allowing them to get up. 
But do these people, do these God deniers see their own behavior as wrong or immoral? Of course not. They don't see anything wrong with what they're doing because without God, listen to this, without God, they get to decide what is moral and immoral. So, of course, whatever is moral benefits them. So whatever is to their benefit, therefore, is moral according to their moral compass. They got to set it, not God. They become as those described in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Those who call good evil and evil good. Now, there's a brilliant apologist and debater named William Lane Craig. And if you haven't heard of him before, I, I hope I can introduce him to you because he is absolutely brilliant. He has debated, and I would say won, many of the debates against the leading atheists of our generation. And he wrote this about this subject. If naturalism is true, naturalism being no God, it's all just random chance. If naturalism is true, it becomes impossible to condemn war, oppression, or crime as evil. Nor can one praise brotherhood, equality, or love as good. It does not matter what values you choose, for there is no right and wrong. Good and evil do not exist. That means that an atrocity, like the Holocaust, was really morally indifferent. You may think that it was wrong, but your opinion has no more validity than that of the Nazi war criminal who thought it was good. In his book, Morality After Auschwitz, Peter Haas asks, how an entire society could have willingly participated in state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide over a decade without any serious opposition. He argues that far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic which held that however difficult and unpleasant the task might have been, the mass extermination of the Jews was entirely justified. The Holocaust as a sustained effort was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong and in fact defined it as ethically tolerable and even good. Moreover, Haas points out, because of its coherence and internal consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from within. Only from a transcendent vantage point, which stands above relativistic Sociocultural mores could such a critique be launched. But in the absence of God, it is precisely such a vantage point that we lack. One rabbi who was in prison at Auschwitz said that it was as though all the Ten Commandments had been reversed Thou shalt kill, thou shalt lie, thou shalt steal. Mankind has never seen such a hell, and yet, in a real sense, if naturalism is true, Our world is Auschwitz. There is no good and evil, no right and wrong. Objective moral values simply do not exist. In the opening story, if the girl at the beach had simply lied to the boy and then walked off with the quarter, no one could say it was wrong because she simply did what was best for her. You see, if there is no transcendent, external, absolute giver of morality, then each one of us is free to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, and we're, surprise, surprise, going to pick whatever's best for us. We saw it happen in Nazi Germany. They thought they were doing what was best for them as their state in the pure Aryan race, 
And so the Jews were the unfortunate victims of their new ethic and morality that they all embraced, but it was apart from God. And we rightfully look at it today and say it's evil, not as though it's something um, independent from God, but because it is rooted in God and his way, saying, thou shalt not murder. And so we see here that apart from God, morality becomes entirely subjective. Thirdly, we see that without God, there is no fear of accountability. Psalm 14, verse 5 continues, But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. Now at first, this looks like a throwaway verse, but it says a lot. They are overcome with dread. Now, the godless at first appear as though they have life by the tail. There's nothing to worry about. There's no accountability. And yet it says they are overcome from a sense of dread. And where is this coming from? It's coming from the undeniable evidence of seeing God's presence in the company of the righteous. That is, those who believe in him, love him, and serve him. They still see the evidence of it in their lives. Today, that is the church. Our witness stands as living testimony to those who say there is no God. It stands as testimony that even if they reject him, there is still something that says to them, one day you will give an account for your lives. One day. Because deep down, the core reason why a person wants to deny God is not because there's no compelling evidence that God exists. The problem is that God is a threat to those who want to be their own God and live life how they please, without answering to anyone for it. Psalm 10 verse 13 says, Why do the wicked denounce God? Because he has said in his heart, You will not require an account. So, if there is no God, then Adolf Hitler, who annihilated six million Jews, will receive nothing more or less than Mother Teresa, who gave her life to helping the poor. It was the Russian author Dostoevsky who once wrote, If God does not exist then everything is permissible. Madeline Murray O'Hare, perhaps the leading atheist of her generation, you'll probably recognize her name as being the, the instrumental person in having prayer eradicated, removed from American public schools. She once said this, I am an atheist not because I have searched behind every star and looked under every rock to prove there is no God, I am an atheist because I live my life as if there were no God. I am an atheist because I live my life as if there were no God. How many people today are living their lives as if there were no God? There is a category of people that I would call here the practical atheist. These are the people who might still believe in there being a God, but go on to live their life as if there is none, as if there will be no reckoning, No accountability for life's actions. The practical atheists, they might give lip service to God, but their life shows no evidence of it. They live as if there were no God, no accountability. But to one and all, God's word still declares in Hebrews 9 verse 27, people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. Most people, myself included, would rather not think about accountability and especially judgment. But not thinking about something 
Not believing in something won't make it go away. The bank robber may not believe in the existence of the police, but that won't stop the police from arresting him, will it? He may not believe in the existence of the judge, but that won't stop the judge from handing down a verdict. He may not believe in prison, but that won't stop him from being sent there. Do you see the parallel? You may not believe in God. You may not believe in facing divine judgment or the punishment of hell. But on judgment day, not one person will be told by God, Oh, well, seeing as you didn't believe in me, you get a free pass. God says, man is without excuse. Not just because of creation, but even more because he has provided graciously a free way of complete pardon if we only believe. An amazing testimony of God's ability to redeem is that the aforementioned Madeline Murray O'Hare, who was instrumental in having prayer removed from public schools across the United States, her own son, William Murray, gave his life to Christ. And upon hearing of her son's conversion, conversion, she reported to have said, One could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother. I repudiate him entirely and completely, for now in all times he is beyond human forgiveness. But William went on to become a pastor and the chairman of the Religious Freedom Coalition, and he has since made this observation about his mother's work. The atheist claims, get rid of God and you'll get rid of society's problems. But look now. Look at the schools with God gone. Now we have guns, rape, drugs, condoms, police patrols, metal detectors, violence, and AIDS. We need God more than ever. So, can we be good without God? I hope you've seen the picture clearly today. Not a chance. Without God, there is no hope of being good. But with God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, his goodness is imparted to us. And we can live in it. And live for eternity with him. And though today we see so many people groping around in darkness, saying there is no God, living the part of the fool today, we have the tremendous privilege of being those who will be assigned to our nation, assigned to the people around us, that though you may go on living your life as if there was no God, they see something in us, they'll give them a nagging doubt. What if I'm wrong? Because their lives are showing me something different. Their lives are showing me that there is a creator. And so just as Hebrews 9.27 states, people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, we have the tremendous privilege and responsibility to continue to relate verse 28, which continues. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to all those who are waiting for him. I pray that we will be ready to hold out that message and that we will live it out all the more in the darkness around us. Let's pray together. Father God, today we together declare you are. You are. We need no more explanation than that. For I confess my mind can barely even begin to contemplate your existence. How from before the beginning of time, you were there. You have always been there. 
There has never been a time where you have not existed, and there never will be a time where you do not exist. You simply are. And out of who you are, you created everything. You spoke it into being. And Lord, I can't even begin to fathom how you did that, but we simply see the beauty, the marvel of our universe around us, the complexity of even the single human cell, the DNA, the genome imprinted within each one of us, distinct, unique, that the odds of it coming out of, out of nothing is simply impossible. And so, Lord, we just look at the evidence and we say, Lord, though we can't understand you, that makes you all the more convincing because we can't even understand the created world. We simply look at it and we marvel and we say, it is complex. How much more complex are you? But God is amazing and as incredible as you are, beyond the ability of man to understand, you have so humbled yourself to come near to us that we can know you in a personal way as Father. Thank you, Father, that in this relationship, we can feel your love, we can hear your voice, we can sense your presence, and above all, you reveal to us what is right and what is wrong, how we can live our lives according to your will and your way. And Lord, we also know that within us, apart from Christ, there is no good, but that in Christ, all of your goodness has been imparted to us, that we are right with you because of Jesus. And so today we leave here with that confidence. And Lord, I pray and beg on behalf of our darkening nation, all those who are playing the fool, Lord, may they see in us something that would point to you, that though they are so certain that you do not exist, that you will not require an account, that they will see in us something that will invoke even a sense of dread, of doubt, that what if I'm wrong? Because I see something in them that's different, something I don't have, something I need. And I pray, Lord, that you would sharpen our witnesses to shine in such a way that people would wonder and that they would ask and that then we would be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in you. Bless your people to that end, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.